All right, let's pray. Father, once again, we come before you and we acknowledge our need. So we open your word and we look at the profoundness of what is before us and all that you have here in your word. Well, we could genuinely spend an eternity looking at just one or two words in your scriptures and we would never exhaust the depth of the meaning and implications of what is there in reference to who you are and how it impacts our lives. And so I pray tonight we would, we would gain that in our understanding, that we would recognize these things and that you would help us to understand you more. Thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ. Bless this time together in your name. Amen. Well, it's good to be back together again tonight as we study the Bible together. I want you to open your Bibles with me to our study of John chapter 17. John chapter 17. This morning when Russ was making announcements and he mentioned our time tonight and mentioned the title of uh, the message tonight, it, it just got me reminded again as to why I titled it that, nothing better, in light of the reality of what we have here in John 17. God, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, praying for us. I don't think anything in life could be better than that. I don't think there's any more ironclad guarantee into the reality of an answered prayer than have God pray to God. God the Son, pray to God the Father, that God the Father would accomplish what God the Son was asking. Uh, there's nothing better than that. And so we've entitled it that for our study of John 17, and we are returning once again to this section that begins at verse 17. And goes down through verse 23. John chapter 17, verse 17 through verse 23. Jesus says in his prayer, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And you did send me into the world. I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. I do not ask in behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you did send me. And the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you did send me and did love me, or and did love them even as you did love me. So here we are again in the prayer of Jesus Christ, and we are know already from our studies in this passage that Jesus Christ is now just hours from his death, a time of great trouble, a time of great anguish, and yet we find Jesus praying. 
an indictment upon my own life, probably an indictment upon your own life, when trouble strikes, sometimes we say, well, at least I can pray. As if it's the last thing that we should be doing because we haven't figured out how to accomplish whatever it is we're going through and deal with whatever it is we're going through in any other way. So we say, well, at least I'll pray when, in fact, Jesus is here prior to the situation and in the midst of it, and that's what we find him doing. And while we would find it justifiable if Jesus was to be praying that God would change the circumstances that he was now to find himself entering into, what we actually find is that Jesus is praying that the Father glory would actually continue and it would, that he would be glorified in all things. So this is a wonderful prayer. There is obviously much here for us to learn through it. And most of all, it is here in light of John putting it in his gospel for the very purpose that John wrote the gospel. That we, as those who are encountering this, would believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing we would have life in his name. So right here is just another section of John's gospel that shows to us who Jesus Christ actually is. This is the overall drive of this entire text, all 26 verses. And so we find Jesus praying first for Him to be returned to the glory that He had with the Father before time ever began. Why? Because in doing that, in God fulfilling that prayer request of Jesus, God the Father will be ultimately glorified and He will be known. And so Jesus prays that in the first five verses. Glorify yourself by glorifying me. Then, of course, we saw in verses 6 through 13, Jesus prayed that our faith would continually be protected by the Father. Guard their faith. I, I took them here. I manifested myself to them, whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me. And they've kept your word. So guard them, protect them, keep them in the faith. And we know by means of God's word and by means of our own Christian experience that unless God were sustaining us in our own faith, we would walk away from him in the very next moment. We know that. We know that from the word of God, that, that, that faith is a gift and that God keeps us in him And we know from our own experience and our own heart and just our own sinfulness that if God were not sustaining us, we would just walk away. And then we began last Lord's Day to understand the third petition in this prayer. The night before Jesus is about to pay for our sin, and that is that the Father would set us apart. That He would set us apart. It's about sanctification. Father, sanctify them, verse 17, in the truth, your word is truth. And we understand that then, just from that very statement alone, there is no practical sanctification without knowing the word of God, without being in the word of God. Sanctify them in the truth, which is this body of truth that God has given us, your word is truth. And so we understand that we must be holy. That's what sanctification means. Holiness. 
We must be holy to stand in the presence of God. Without holiness, no one will see God, the Bible tells us. And Jesus Christ, through His death and through His resurrection, I was thinking about this as we were singing the old rugged cross, and thinking about the words of that, and I'm not trying to be hard on George Beverly Shea, but, or what was his name? Uh, yeah, George Bernard, but I, I cling to Jesus Christ. He died on the cross. I, I, I'm assuming that's what he was meaning when he was writing those words, but I, I cling to Jesus Christ. His death, his resurrection has accomplished all that we need so that when we believe upon him, we are positionally before God in the eyes of God because of Jesus Christ, we are holy. We are sanctified. That's not what Jesus is praying for here when he says, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. What Jesus is praying for is practical holiness in life. In other words, a Christian and a Christian's life Jesus is praying that we would actually walk according to the faith we have. Live according to the faith that we have. And living a sanctified life is living an obedience-directed life. And that means that a sanctified holy life is only through the Word of God. Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. So there's no sanctification that happens in a practical sense any other way. You will not be sanctified as a Christian if you leave your Bible on the shelf and never get into it, never read it, never work to understand it. We even heard tonight in our testimonies, you will not have an answer for anybody outside of Christendom, whatever the religion is they are in, whether it's humanism or whether it's any gamut of other ism that the world has invented to be a religion, you won't have an answer unless you know the truth. Unless you speak the truth. Years ago, probably 20 years ago now, before I graduated seminary, I was in a, living in a trailer park, and a friend of mine was in the trailer park with me, and we were walking around the trailer park. We started to stop to talk to one of the neighbors that we had, and a guy named Larry, and we started to talk to him about the things of God, and he continued to rebut those things on a regular basis. And I would say, but the Bible says, and he would say, yeah, yeah, but this and that, and then my friend would say, but the Bible says, and then he would say something else, and I would say, but the Bible says this, and, and then... We asked him a question, and he goes, yeah, yeah, I know. The Bible says, I said, now you're catching on. It's the Scriptures, what God says. That's what means anything. It's not what we say, it's what the Bible says. And so there is no sanctification in a practical sense without the Scriptures. We must be in the truth, we must learn the truth, we must do the truth. So that we will live holy lives. So is our living the goal of our sanctification? That's a question. Is our living the goal of sanctification? All of our sanctification has a goal. All of our practical holy living has a goal. And the goal is not simply our growth in sanctification. That's not the, that's not the goal. There is a goal and Jesus uncovers it for us or reveals it or shows it to us or prays about it, I should say, here in verses 17 through 23. The goal is not simply our growth in the truth, although Jesus prays for that and we must be in the truth, but the goal of our sanctification is 
unity with each other. Unity with each other with the ultimate goal of gospel proclamation. And all of that to the end result that God is glorified in it all. And so I just want to say at the outset that the goal of our sanctification is a gospel-proclaiming unity. The goal of our sanctification individually, the goal of our walk of faith, the goal of our living in the truth is a gospel-proclaiming unity. Now that's very interesting to me as a person and a pastor in light of the fact that in our world, We often say that there are two subjects that you always want to avoid in a discussion. Some of you are chuckling because you know exactly what that is. Many will say, well, I never discuss what? Politics and religion. I never discuss politics and I never discuss religion. And what is meant, of course, by that is that if you begin to discuss any one of those with any person it will inevitably bring about some kind of discord, some kind of disunity among people, so avoid that at all costs. That's the idea in our world. Well, we can certainly say this, if you look at the centuries of church history, that statement seems to be true. If you look at the history of the church throughout the ages, that statement would simply ring true, simply by the fact that the church has been constantly plagued with disunity, controversy. And of course, I'm not here tonight. We could spend a whole week of nights, thematic nights, on that very subject and list all kinds of things that there have been controversies throughout the ages. They are numerous. But what I want us to know is that if we take Jesus' words at face value, then we must rightfully assume that the reason there are controversies, particularly within Christendom, is not because religion is so controversial, not because the things of the Scriptures are so controversial, or Jesus is so controversial, but because disunity takes place where Those who are saints or those who claim to be saints are not being practically sanctified. Disunity happens where sanctification is lacking. Why do I say that? Because according to Jesus' prayer, unity is the goal of sanctification and a unified people are a gospel-reflecting people. Notice what Jesus says. Just to kind of lay the groundwork for this. He says, I do not ask, verse 20, in behalf of these alone, that is in the disciples alone that are with me right now, but for those who believe in me through their word. Why? So that, here's the purpose, they may all be one. Even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you did send me. Unity, not simply unity in Jesus Christ, that's true, that happens when we believe in Jesus Christ, but a unity that we're going to talk about in in a moment 
to flush out this reality of sanctification's goal being unity and a gospel proclaiming unity. Verse 23, I in them, you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and you love them even as you love me. So let's have that principle in our mind as we begin. If there is disunity in the church, You can be rest assured that somewhere in the process, the truth of God has been set aside for something else. Because sanctification happens in the truth. When the truth is known and when the truth is put into practice, unity prevails. Sanctification is Exercised. It's being seen and being exercised, and the world sees the picture of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ that reconciles even those who seem to be so different and those who are alienated from God. The world sees that and wonders. In other words, the gospel unites us. The gospel unites us. It unites us with God. It unites us with us so that the world might know Christ. That's the essence of what Jesus is praying here in these verses. So if being sanctified leads to unity, what kind of unity is it? What kind of unity is it? And the answer to that question is answered here in our text. Notice, I read already verse 21 and verse 23, but I want to read them again. This is the purpose clause. I don't ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through them, through their word, through their gospel proclamation, so that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us. Here's the goal. So that the world may believe that you did send me. And then verse 23, I in them, you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and you love me even as you love, or you love them even as you love me. So the unity that is produced by sanctification through the truth is a unity, at least on the very surface we can see, it's a unity that is parallel to the unity that exists in the Godhead. Do you see that there? So that they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us. There is a unity produced by means of sanctification that is parallel to the unity that exists within the Godhead. What kind of unity exists within the Godhead? Well, it's a unity. It's in a a unity of direction. It is a unity of orientation. It is a unity of will. It is a unity of desire. The Trinitarian Godhead is directed all the way in those things in a complete unified way. In a word, the Godhead is like-minded in all things. The Spirit isn't running rogue on Himself. Jesus isn't doing His own deal and God's not over here doing His own. God the Father isn't over here doing His own thing. They are like-minded in all things. This is, not, this is not actually a new principle that we are seeing. This is 
Jesus, obviously praying this to the Father, and the disciples caught on to this, and especially the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was proclaiming this kind of unity with the church in Corinth. A church, by way of our own understanding of the church, was a disunified church. This is what Paul said, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but the same God works all of them in all men. So right there in the midst of Paul, after he talks about in chapter 11, the reality of this, this unity around communion, this, the, the Lord's death that brings us together in this communion. He, he says, look, we, we have all these different gifts. We have all these different things going on in service, but it's the same God doing it all. There, right there in 1 Corinthians 12 is a glimpse of the unity of the Godhead. Same direction, same orientation, same will, same desire. In other words, even though there is the manifestation of God's gifting in individuals for the church, and that's varied and different, not all of us are the same giftings, not all of us have the same spiritual gifts and same talents as God has directed us, there is a directed, connected goal with all of the Godhead. They're all directed at the same thing. Why? Because it doesn't matter which aspect of the Godhead is working in and through those gifts, They're all from the same source. They all come from God and they all have the same goal. In fact, as we studied 1 Corinthians some time ago, we clearly saw this church and all of this disunity in it, not because God had not done the right things with them, Not because they somehow were lacking something from God, but simply because they were not submitting their individual selves to the truth that God had given them. That's why they were disunified. So instead of practicing the truth, which is practical sanctification, they were filled with all kinds of disunity because they just disobeyed the truth that God had given them. So that is simply to say that not all believers actually practice the holiness that they should. The Corinthian church proves that. The actual case is that while we should practice holiness, we should walk by faith as Christians, the reality is that while the church should be unified in its desire, it should be unified in its will, It should be unified in its orientation like the Godhead. Far too often we're not. It's not because God has failed us. It's because we are not personally striving in the truth that produces that kind of unity. So there's a sense, or Jesus prays here, Father, your word is what sanctifies. Your word is what sanctifies. In fact, Jesus says in... in Verse 19, for their sakes I sanctify myself. For their sakes I walk in holiness. For their sakes I do these very things. Your word is what sanctifies, Father. I have shown them what it looks like to follow your word. And I did it perfectly. Verse 19 is Jesus saying, I sanctified myself for them. 
now cause that to be the case in their life. So there is a sense as Christians whereby we are already unified, right? We are all one in Christ. There is a sense in which that's implied here in verse 21 particularly. We are all unified in Christ, but there's another sense in which we must work to be unified. So so if we have to work at this process, what can help us in that kind of unity? What can help us in this kind of unity? Well, first is this. We have to remember that we as Christians are brothers and sisters. We have to remember that we are brothers and sisters. In other words, we are family. As I was preparing my notes for tonight and I put that thought down, I sat back in my chair and began to think, well, maybe that's why there's disunity in the church oftentimes. Not because we don't think we're brothers and sisters, but sometimes because we think wrongly in the way of our brothers and sisters. In fact, we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ just as poorly as we treat our own family. But we have to think of it differently. We belong to the family of God. We belong to the family of God. That is why we are brothers and sisters of one another. In other words, our relationship to one another is not something we did for ourselves. Our relationship with each other has everything to do with what God has done. In fact, this is exactly how John describes the Christian. Remember it? Go back to chapter 1. Let's just go all the way back. This is exactly how John describes us. John chapter 1, verse 12. But as many as received Him through them, He gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in His name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In other words, we're not in the family unless God did it. And that's an important distinction for us to remember because there are implications for us in that truth. The first implication is this. If this family that we are in has been established by God, then we do not get to arbitrarily choose who's going to be in it and who's not going to be in it. We don't get to arbitrarily choose that. In other words, we don't get to choose who our brothers and sisters are going to be. Hmm. That means that we have to be brotherly and sisterly to each other whether we want to or not. We have to respond in brotherly ways and sisterly ways. Now, I like that, don't you? I like that. Because there may be some people here who don't like me. You may not have verbally told me, but in your heart you just don't like me, but you have to treat me as a brother. I like that. I like that. That little snot-nosed brother you don't like, you have to treat as a brother. 
And I have to do the same with you. We're brothers and sisters by God's design. It's not a mistake. Look around the room. Look at your family. What a ragtag bunch we are. But we're family. We're family. So that's the first implication. We're family. It's the first implication of knowing in this unity. But there's a second, and it's this. Because we are of the same family, we must be committed to each other in tangible ways. Because we are of the same family, we must be committed to each other in tangible ways. What do I mean? Well, we must be willing to help each other in every way and every spectrum that comes across our path. Now, some of you were very helpful to me in recent days after I broke my leg. The snow kept falling and you, you men helped me in ways that was humbling to me and helpful to my family. As you came over after the snow fell and you shoveled my driveway as I sat there in the window and watched you do it with chagrin on my face. And some of you actually caught me outside trying to do some of my stubborn self. You were helpful to me. That's, that's a helping thing. So whatever it is, sanctified people help people. Sanctified people are helping kind of people. Christians are Christians that help Christians. And when the world sees that, when the world looks at that, when the world sees outside my house a truck park and a guy shoveling the driveway on the heavy, wet snow that's there, the world is caused to wonder and we are able to speak of our great Savior. So one implication of the family is that we don't get to choose our family. We don't get to choose the family we're in. God does that. And the second, we are to be helping each other. There's a third implication to this kind of unity that it is that reflects God. The third implication is this, fellowship. Fellowship. Now, we know that word here. We know it a lot. Our church is named that. We think of it. We hear of it a lot. But do we understand it? Do we understand fellowship? Because there's a very familiar term for us. There's a word translated in the English Bible. Fellowship is the word in the original language koinonia. Sometimes you have websites called koinonia. You look at other places that call themselves koinonia. Far too often that word has been wrongly defined as some kind of close connection between friends. It's just this connection that people have between friends. In other words, just a group of people getting together and usually it involves some kind of food. And of course, we joke around here about that. And so in many places, the word koinonia has really become some kind of cliche, some kind of Christian speak for this loose group of people that get together. But the actual idea of koinonia in the New Testament was more the idea of a partnership, more the idea of a partnership that had a commonality in all things. In fact, we get a picture of this just over in the next 
chapter of scripture or in the book of scripture in Acts chapter 2. Go to there for a second. You know this passage well, but it's a good picture for us to see this koinonia in action. Of course, Peter had preached the day of Pentecost was had happened, the great outpouring of the spirit on the people. People are all wondering what's going on. Peter preaches there's a great ingathering of people that takes place who are pierced in the heart by the preaching of Peter. He says, you need to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ in verse 38 for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive a gift of the Holy Spirit. And with many other words in verse 40, he solemnly testifies and keeps on exhorting them saying, be saved from his per- this perverse generation. That's one of my favorite verses as a preacher because it says he kept testifying with other words. He just kept going. His message wasn't just simply the verse before that. So then, verse 41, those who had received his word, now here's Christians, they're baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they were, here it is, continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, that's the word koinonia, to the breaking of bread, to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions, and they're sharing them with all as anyone might have need. That's the true essence of koinonia. This commonality of purpose, commonality of direction, commonality in all things. And so it's clear, I think, from that passage that fellowship in the family is seen in that reality, a commonality in all things, physical and spiritual. There's a commonality in direction, a commonality in purpose, a commonality in will, a commonality in desire. The Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, that we have fellowship, koinonia, with the Father. We have a commonality with God the Father. A partnership in commonality with Him. 1 Corinthians 1.9 says we have fellowship, koinonia, with the Son. Here's the idea in John chapter 17 that even as you, Father, are in me and I in you so that they may be in us. 1 John 1.3, we have koinonia with the Father. 1 Corinthians 1.9, we have fellowship, koinonia, with the Son. 1 Corinthians 10.16, we have fellowship with the blood and body of Christ. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14 says, we have fellowship with the Spirit. There, the whole Godhead is included in the fellowship and partnership with us. That is simply to say that we have a partnership with all of the Godhead. We have a partnership with all who are believers. That partnership is that commonality in our purpose, commonality in our direction, commonality in our will and our desire. And so because of our partnership that is with God, we must have that practical partnership with others in the church, our brothers and sisters in Christ, a commitment to that. That means that we must be involved in the church. We have to be involved in the church. The church just can't be something you do every now and then. It can't be getting together with the family just because it fits into your schedule. We have to be involved in the church and with the lives of those who are in the church. That's our family. It's 
our brothers and sisters. That means we must be here when the family gathers together for worship. We have to be here. That means we have to avail ourselves to the opportunities that there is for that commonality of purpose that go on throughout the week in Bible studies and prayer times and those kinds of things so that we can be with our brothers and sisters in, in those functions together. So that we can be being sanctified in the truth together. That's what koinonia means. It's not just a name on our sign out front. Means if we have been gifted in certain ways, then we look for how we can involve ourselves in the ministries where our gifts are going to be used by God to the maximum extent for His glory, whatever that looks like. And once again, just as Jesus is praying, when we are living our sanctification, Christian unity becomes visible. Unique qualities will be seen by the world. I don't think there's a better picture of this unity in the church than being known as the body of Christ. I don't think there's a better metaphor that God could have given us in reference to us, the church, than that. We are the body of Christ. The body is a unit. It may be made up of different parts. Those parts are different in function, different in ability, different in visibility. But they are all from one body. The Bible says we are all baptized by one spirit into one body. The church. It doesn't matter where you came from or who you are. Ephesians tells us it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek, if you're a slave or free, you're one in Christ. You're a unity. You're together. You're part of the body. Even though we are many, we are one body, and we have one goal. One goal. The body exists to do something. And that something is to be done together, in unity, and through unity. Right? You're in me. It says that they may be one, even as Father, you're in me, and I'm in you, that they may also be in us. Here's the goal, that the world may believe that you sent me, and the glory which you have given me, I've given them, that they may be one, just as we are one. So we're unified in body. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're unified in fellowship. We're unified in our, in our commitment to one another. We reflect the very glory of Jesus Christ in our living and in our actions, just as God has given glory to the Son, that He may reflect God to the world, that we see in Christ God in the flesh. And in them, verse 23, you and me, that they may be perfected in this unity so that the world may know that you sent me and you love them even as you love me. You see, there's a goal. Unity through unity. Jesus tells us just what that is in verse 23. That the world might know 
that you sent me. The very purpose that John gave us, his very gospel, that we might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Our sanctification has that same goal, that others might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So what is our part in all of that? What is our individual part? Well, we know this. Individually, you can't change the entire church, right? You can't dismantle disunity individually in the whole church. But we can begin with ourselves. We individually can be an example of living according to the truth. We can be an example of fulfilling and following what Jesus has prayed for here in John seventeen seventeen. Remembering we are part of a family. So remember to love your brothers and sisters. And you can involve yourself in the ministries that are happening in the church. You don't need to just sit back and say, well, somebody else will do it. No. If God's moving upon your heart to even think about it, guess what? God's moving for you to get involved and do it. Get involved. Be a part of it. Participate with yourself and participate with your gifts. You'll be a help to others. Help others who are in need. And I believe that when we are obediently living as God called us and showed us how to live, as He's praying for us to live, then this church is going to be a unified place. Not to our puffing up, but to the glory of Him. To the glory of God. And when we do that, the proclamation of the gospel will go out to the world. Jesus says, Father... Finish the work of glorifying yourself. Father, guard their faith. Guard the faith of those whom you've saved. And Father, set them apart so that your body will be unified and the world may hear of your saving grace. And then lastly, verses 24 to the end, he says, Father, bring them home. Bring them home. He's not asking for God to kill us. He's asking for us to be where He is. We'll get to that next time. Next time. Let's pray together. Father, thank You again for tonight, for just this chance to briefly look at Your Word, think through the implications of what it's saying, to think about sanctification in a practical way. The goal of our sanctification is the unifying reality of us as a body so that you would be proclaimed throughout the world, so that the world would see us and the strangeness of it all and know that you are the true living God, that you're not a crutch to us, that you're not just a myth to us, that you're not just a concept that we call God, but that you're real and that you change lives. That when someone will repent of their sin and believe upon Jesus Christ as their Savior, that they truly will be saved. You promised that. They confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that Jesus is Lord, 
you will save them. So Lord, I pray that there's those here tonight who don't know you. Maybe they've played games in their own heart. They don't know you. May they believe upon Jesus Christ. We will embrace them as a brother or sister in Christ. We'll help them grow. By your grace, they will grow. They will involve themselves in a body here. And we will be a unified body that will proclaim your name to the world. So thank you for these things. Help us to exercise them for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.